Dose is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Krauss, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxian Partners and general partner of Town Hall Ventures. The guys talk to leaders from various aspects of healthcare and cover personal stories, entrepreneurship, investing, and have a few laughs, many at each other's expense. I've heard a lot about Toyan. I never actually got to meet Toyan, and it was an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah. You could see why everybody who yeah. you talk to yep. loves and reveres this woman. Yep. Uh, you know, her background is fascinating. So many different experiences that she's had in so many different settings across the globe, and more importantly, the work that she's doing now that she did at Commonwealth Care Alliance, but now that she's doing as an entrepreneur at City Block. I mean, it's probably some of the most impactful work that a healthcare entrepreneur is doing. I know you guys are investors, we are, I believe, yeah. Trevor. Yeah, um, we were investors, actually. I always actually, like to plug your portfolio you companies so much, on Healthy yeah. Dose. Yeah. Well, you rip on the companies that I didn't invest <laughs> in. That seems like a fair trade. Well, <laughs> so we were honored, really, to work with Aya and Toyin while they were still at Sidewalk Labs and invest at that point, and then subsequently, Andy also had an investment in City Block Health, independent, and as Town Hall came together, we put them together under Town Hall. I can't think of many entrepreneurs who exude mission as much as Toyin does. Yeah, it's uh, not near, You it's and I have not, done enough of these where we sometimes see Yeah, you it. see it yeah, yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. We have, people talk mission, yeah, they talk about like, yeah. And in reality, what the business they're running isn't actually truly as aligned with oh, the mission, mission, mission. she thought that her mission. life was going to be like when she had worked a long enough time, either as a doctor or at CCA, she thought she was going to retire and some ramen noodles do this type of stuff in public health. I mean, yeah. she's really a public health advocate, as she said, coupled with a doctor. And I can see how she brings just an amazing wealth of credibility and authenticity, knowledge to that organization. It's, I mean... My good friend Ambar Bhattacharya said, we just like need more toy-ins in our, in our, in our world and in yeah. our industry. So yeah, I no think question. you captured it well. I get it now. Yeah, she's amazing. Can I do the Series B? Sure. At a substantial step up? Perfect. <laughs> well, first of all, let me say... I'm not an investor in City Block. I wish I was. I say that often. But Toyin has like the highest NPS of any executive. Stop. I mean, it. No, seriously. Like widely everyone, beloved. Yeah, widely beloved. So yeah. I'm really, really excited to see what the magic's all about. Yeah. Thank you. First of all, for those who probably you cannot tell you are not from this country, you grew up in a healthcare system in the UK, correct? No, it's even more complicated. So I was born here. Yeah. Grew up in Kenya. Okay. So I moved to Kenya when I was two. Came to the U.S. for undergrad, okay. um, worked in San Francisco for a little bit after that. Then I moved to England, okay. did a master's degree in medical right. school. And then I did some international health work in West Africa, and then yeah. I came back to the U.S. When did you come back to the U.S. from West Africa? Uh, 2009. And came here to Massachusetts to yep, work for... Yeah, came to Boston, finished my residency training at Boston Medical Center, and then stayed to launch my career. So each one of those is a different healthcare system. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about what you've learned. Growing up in a developing country where healthcare is decidedly fee-for-service, 
and unashamedly rationed on the basis of ability to pay, you see a lot of innovation, actually. Like, it's all cash pay, so people vote with their pockets. Mm. You see poor people making choices that I think are very, very reflective of what I see my patients do here in the U.S., and there's a lot of synergies there that I actually didn't expect to find. And then you see a lot of innovation around the healthcare workforce, and so the notion of using non-traditional providers, community health workers, lay people, the notion of what trust looks like when essentially the very expensive inaccessible healthcare system is competing for trust of patients with alternative providers, with lay midwives, with community health workers, with witch doctors in some instances. There's actually a lot there that is really interesting when you kind of examine how we ration healthcare in the United States on the basis of ability to pay. And then having done my medical training in England in nationalized health service where, again, healthcare is rationed, but this time in a much more attempt to be deliberate about rationing based on need as opposed to ability to pay. I got to see kind of a different structure around the way that we make decisions in healthcare. I got to see a really different structure about people's expectations of what the health system is for them and to them. I got to see a place where primary care is really valued financially, societally, structurally. It's empowered. You know, primary care trusts are the yeah. purchasers of healthcare yeah. in mm -hmm. the United Kingdom. And then I came to the United States and I thought I'm coming to the richest country in the world to practice medicine to hone my skills so I can go back and help all those poor people in Africa. And I found myself in South Boston at a community health center taking care of people who struggled with just their basic needs and struggled to truly access health services even though there is a, it's Boston, you can't cross the street without tripping over a doctor or a hospital. Yep. And yet um, when Massive we look at disparity. disparities yeah. to access and we look at disparities in outcome and you look at people's like lived experiences of accessing care, it felt like Sierra Leone in some ways. It felt mm. like when I was you know, working in a government hospital in what at the time was the poorest country in the world that was not an active you know, warfare, Sierra Leone, and we looked around and said, this is a free hospital for children. There's no user fees. There's absolute access, if you will. It's physically accessible to people, and yet patients chose to do other things. They chose not to come, and partly they didn't come because they didn't feel like they were respected. They didn't feel like people listened to them. They didn't feel like people addressed the things that mattered to them. And when I kind of look at Boston and my experience kind of growing up as a family physician in Boston's um, community health centers, so many of those themes resonated again. We had hospitals, but we didn't actually have health for these folks. We didn't have access. We didn't have accessibility in that way. That frame has, has sort of guided for me my career choices and, and certainly is, is a direct path to where we are at City mm -hmm. Block, really thinking about how you both improve and transform the patient experience of care, but to do so in a way that is sustainable by the rules and credos that govern healthcare in the United States. So I'm more than anything, I'm a pragmatist. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not running around despite my fundamental belief that healthcare is a human right and should be delivered to everybody regardless of their ability to pay. The levers that we have to use today are the free market in some ways. It's our existing payer structures and it is the consumerization of healthcare. And let's figure out how we use that to actually expand true access to healthcare for underserved populations. What's your view on Medicare for all? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a really excellent part of the solution, right? And I think that I think that the when we think about how healthcare is financed, certainly ensuring coverage for everyone is is a major major issue. And I'm supportive of whatever tactics we could take. I'm you know, supportive of expansion of the Affordable Care Act and expansion of Medicaid, absolutely. But even within that, I mean, when you look at the fact that Medicare, in some way, shape, or form, is 
the primary payer or a payer source for the majority of the U.S. population through the Medicaid program, through the Medicare program. We're, we're already kind of approximating in some ways a single payer system, if you will, for many of our citizens in the United States, many residents of the United States. But access to healthcare and health delivery still hasn't caught up in that way. And so even within our payment structures and our payment models that are available to us, we're still providing healthcare in a, it's fee-for-service, it's challenging to access, it is not comprehensive, it's not holistic. And so we need to take those levers as well, even as we kind of embark on payment reform, to ensure that we're actually delivering the objective and delivering to its fullest potential the way we can actually provide services to people. Other than payment, what would you take from your experience in the UK and apply it to the US to make um, this a better system in your mind? So payment's a huge one. I think that investment in primary care and social services and mental health is another huge lesson that we can learn, not just from the UK, but from virtually every developed economy and the way that they make investments in social services. And we hear the statistics. But not as much in behavioral health. You threw behavioral health into that, but they don't make the same level of investments in behavioral health, do they? They don't. And it's hard for me to be able to tell. And this is part actually speaks to some of our focus on social determinants of health today in the United States. I think we're still treating symptoms of poverty and inequality and a lack of a social safety net. So you know, there's a question for me outside of folks with serious mental illness for whom crisis mental health and integrated behavioral health continues to be the mainstay. How much of the other diseases that we today bucket into behavioral health and that we today spend resources on from a behavioral health lens are actually symptoms of our lack of investment in social safety. Interesting. Net. And we're talking so much about like, let's spend money on housing and let's spend money on food and let's spend that's money on- That's not healthcare, that's right? That's a symptom. Right, right, right. That's still a symptom of our fundamental right. lack of investment in a fundamental sort of basic living standard for people in this country. We're chipping away at it from the healthcare lens and we're sort of asking healthcare to be more and more expansive. But I, I worry that we will continue to balkanize what is a societal problem and to apply a healthcare solution to it, which is definitionally more expensive and less holistic than if we were thinking about it from a public health and a societal perspective. I think the third thing is about the cost of care delivery period at the end. And it ties to the single payer piece, but it is actually leveraging power to, to purchase effectively and to set prices and set cost. And that ties into compensation of physicians at all levels. It ties into the unit cost of procedures, lab studies, certainly into pharmaceuticals. There's a willingness to say that if we are committed to providing healthcare to all people, we have to do so in a way that is financially and fiscally responsible. And then the way that we segment a population and think about addressing folks who are at the highest need, I think is actually something that's pretty special about the United States. It's been forced by that sort of exponential rise in costs and by the focus on, call it margin, call it MLR, whatever lens you look at, has forced the US in many ways to say, all right, you know, every person insured or covered or cared for in the system has a different set of needs and how do we think about that and how do we ideally target resources and target care delivery modalities to the people who have needs based on their need. I don't see a lot of countries that have single payer systems doing that because there's almost implicitly the notion that if we believe that everybody is deserving of health care everybody should be deserving of the same health care. And that is an extension of that equity principle. And I actually think that's that's a fallacy and we should be really careful not to fall it's into really that. It's yeah. equity is actually about saying, how do I get each person the services they need to achieve the everyone same standard of care? Everyone has the same access, but that doesn't mean everyone has the same that's amount right. of care. That's yeah. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Just to get a curiosity to shift back to you, why medicine? Like what made you get into 
You know, Even before that, why Kenya? Why Kenya? So that was not. I'm not that sure she made that choice. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I'm saying, what yeah. brought your family? Yeah. To Kenya? So my parents, um, <laughs> my parents are originally from Nigeria. They were both here in the U.S. in Boston for grad school. Had my sisters and I, and my father's a physician. Went into public health, and took a job in Kenya. It was an opportunity. He wanted to be somewhere different. They are both pretty remarkable people, in that they are the first in their families to really leave Nigeria and build careers outside of it. I actually didn't start out wanting to go to medical school. I wanted to do public health. I was really influenced by growing up as an upper class kid, you know, going to private schools in stone's throw away from the largest slum in, in Africa, right? Like, you know, poverty. Were, I kind of grew up in my advocacy, right, at the height of the AIDS epidemic in sub-Saharan Africa. And so poverty, loss of life, and that just like very palpable sense that like this absolutely could have been me. Like there was no rhyme or reason for me to have been born to the family that I was born to in the circumstances that I was born. At the time, you know, people coming to the United States to have their babies, like that wasn't really a thing for us. Like Nigeria was actually doing quite well. It never occurred to any of us that this additional layer of privilege, being an American, would be part of something that I get to benefit from, but I did. But I was much more interested and am much more interested in many ways in systems and building systems to take care of people at scale and delayed going to medical school. I, I was a pre-med and undergrad and I hated it. I felt so constrained by all the science classes and I minored in history and I really sort of battled through it. And you were it, also at Stanford I was during Stanford. a really interesting time, right? So like, yeah. how much did that expose you to the world of being an entrepreneur, which you've it's now... It's so interesting. Like, I feel like I missed massive bus. Like, the first tech boom had kind of happened a little bit before. So people were going into Silicon Valley. And I just like missed the bus. Like I like when my first job, I was like I was making like I don't know twenty thousand dollars working for like the Department of Health and Human Services in San Francisco. And up until that point, considered myself quite risk averse. Uh, I think you know, picking up from Kenya and flying all the way to California and like building a life there. This was pre-Skype, and so I was you know I'd get like one phone call a week on my calling card, and the thing would cut out halfway through the conversation. Like I, that was kind of as much as I could tolerate, and so I was like I'm going to a job that you know, has a title that I can describe and right. pays me every month and that's it, don't ask me any questions. And I think it took a while for the sort of entrepreneurial spirit in me to get awakened and so I missed all of that. You know, I lived in San Francisco like in the early 2000s and like I can't tell you anything about what was happening in, in entrepreneurship or in tech at that time. But I was always really, really interested in building systems and in solving problems specifically for poor people. You did not intend to practice medicine? I did not. I didn't. I thought I needed it. I thought I needed extra credentials. I mean, I had a master's degree. I had an undergrad from Stanford, but I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me, frankly, making big decisions. And I wanted to be able to make big decisions. And so I went to medical school, and I, you know, told myself I would do it as long as it didn't stop me from doing my AIDS advocacy work and doing the public health stuff and traveling. And I, you know, went to India and spent time in Ethiopia and I spent time in Tanzania. I just wanted to see the world and think about systems. And I started my first clinical rotation, and I just fell in love with this. The immense like privilege that comes with being privy to a person's like deepest suffering, anxiety, and their worries, and to being able to just such a tangible way change somebody's life. Um, and I didn't expect to like practicing, hmm. and I totally fell in love with it, and it completely changed the way I thought about my career. And today, I think it's like my primary identity as being a doctor, is like seeing my patients and having that. Do you still have an active practice yeah, outside of City Block? No, I see patients in City Block. Right. I see patients every week. I do home visits. I text my patients. I call them. I get to 
sit with them, I visit them in the hospital. I, it's such a grounding thing for me and it's not how I expected to find joy. If I only did this, I think I would feel like I was missing a lot because part of what being a direct care provider does for me is it helps me understand the problems and it helps keep me grounded to the solutions. And it also helps me um, also be accountable to my staff and my teams, right? Like, for example, we built a technology platform that I have to work in every day where I communicate with my nurse practitioners and my nurses and our community health partners and with our patients and where I track their visits and I track the 360-degree view of what's going on with the patient. And, like, if it sucks, I have to live with it too. <laughs> and there's something actually very powerful about that as a leader, I think. Before we get into CityBlock, I wanted to make sure we stop and talk a little bit about CCA Commonwealth yeah. Care Alliance. It's is one of the truly kind of unique and successful models around serving dual eligible populations, yeah. right? It is yeah. a health plan. They're underwriting the risk of what in many cases are some of the most complex and expensive patients in our country, consume yeah. massive amounts of spend, but you actually deliver care, yeah. right? It's a direct care model. Yeah. So it's a super innovative health plan. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm, I feel so fortunate to have the opportunity to go work at Commonwealth Care Alliance. It's such a pivotal point in my career. I mean, it's just a really remarkable organization. You described it perfectly. It's to date still one of the largest dual eligible health plans in the country. It continues to have exemplary patient satisfaction, consumer satisfaction, really high quality scores in the CMS star, and a totally like person-centered, community-oriented approach to care. So it functions as a payer and so does all the payer functions, has a network, contracts with providers and specialists. Most of its members are cared for by network providers, so PCPs within the network, but has realized that the way to bridge that gap between what PCPs are able to do within primarily fee-for-service structures, which until we can kind of rip that band-aid off. And, and CCA has been quite successful at moving providers to risk, but you know the majority of those providers continue to be fee-for-service, is bridging that gap in a way that leapfrogged, I think, where the rest of the health plan industry has kind of arrived at, leapfrogged the batch of nurses sitting in an office somewhere in Tennessee, or what have you, responding to phone calls and doing care management over the phone, and recognized that in order to really understand what people need, you got to get to them. Um, and that means you deploy field-based teams to their homes yep. and support their primary care providers and fill those gaps and you make investments in things besides just healthcare. It was incredible. I mean, for someone, you know, I'm still seeing patients in the hospital at, at one of the biggest by volume, one of the biggest hospital partners for CCA. And then also... Is that BMC? That's BMC. Yeah. And thinking about what do we do to help these patients get home safely to reduce the risk of readmission? And then, you know, very quickly to say, well, what if they didn't have to come to the hospital at all? And so one of the things, my first big initiative there was to build a community paramedicine program. We recognized that our patients, just by virtue of their linguistic challenges, their disability status, their presence of mental illness, a lot of our patients were homeless, that if they show up in the emergency room, they have a higher than average risk of being admitted, right. kind of regardless, right. and that once they were admitted, they had a higher than average chance of getting escalated, so going to the ICU versus staying on the regular floor. They had longer lengths of stay, and they had higher readmission rates. Yeah, and, so, and then we also said, well, actually, how many of these admissions are preventable, potentially, through enhanced ambulatory care? And so we worked with the state, actually, to get a waiver to pilot a community paramedicine program. We partnered with East Care Ambulance Service here in Boston, hired paramedics, I built a training program and trained them up. We got them an SUV equipped with a stat lab machine so they could get labs done right away in the field, IV fluids, antibiotics, and put them on call. And they basically would go out to patients' homes and evaluate them, treat them with a physician. Patients will call you 
if they think you're going to answer and can help you, you, right? And so the patients who had been engaged with our care delivery for a long time, and I'm seeing this again in, in New York, they call and they say, I don't feel so good. And sometimes the answer is go to the emergency room. But we then had another tool that was like, we'll send somebody to see you. They'll be there in half an hour. We're able to reduce costs. About 80% of the patients were able to stay in their home setting and access the treatment they needed. And then I stayed through the organization and was able to kind of build on and scale through other aspects of the care model that were really high value. And CCA is a nonprofit. That's right. Has that model kind of inspired for-profit venture private equity-backed businesses? That's to me, is it's a no-brainer in many ways, right? right? Like, it's an obvious gap in our delivery system. And more power to everybody who can figure out how to enter that market and and build a business there because there's such high demand for it. There's so much need for it. I think the Landmarks and Aspires have done a particularly good job of identifying where that opportunity is, selling into it, building a brand around it, and building that loyalty and trust amongst both their kind of customers and their patients. That team came from Caremore and healthcare partners, and so they were doing that on the West Coast, right, in Orange County a lot. And you guys were really leading that in a very progressive healthcare state in Massachusetts, right? And those are the two centers of where a lot of that really complex, high-acuity, risk-based care was being done. I I mean, it sounds like you had, like, an ideal job at CCA. So I'm just curious. I I don't know the City Block story that well, other than what I've heard. But take me through, like, when did you decide? When did you guys decide? Well, there's a step in between, which is pretty interesting, right? Because, like, you and Aya, Aya Ram, who's your co-founder. Yeah are working together at CCA and this this little thing called Sidewalk Labs run by this interesting little company called Google. Yep, never, you know, out of the blue. So um, so Sidewalk is one of the alphabet companies and they're specifically focused on thinking through and piloting and actually hopefully bringing to scale tech-enabled solutions for challenges that people face in urban life. They're really focused on urban space and technology and how you apply that to... Like transportation exactly. and education exactly. and those types they of... They were looking to understand the healthcare space. Many, many, many steps go by and they reached out to Aya and presented kind of us with an opportunity to really start from scratch. And so for people who don't know City Block, can you describe what City Block is? So we're a health provider, tech-enabled, in that we've built custom technology to enable, support, and scale our model. We're focused on primary care, behavioral health, and social services delivery for low-income neighborhoods. Specifically, what that means is that we partner with payers and at-risk providers, and we take risk to care for primarily high-risk and rising-risk members, and those are folks with complex mental health, physical health, substance use disorder, and social needs. And that typically looks like folks in the Medicaid program, people who are duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, and some folks in Medicare. Brick and mortar clinics. That's right. Our clinical model has three key prongs to it. One is physical space. We call them our neighborhood hubs. Really careful about the language here because they're not intended to feel like clinics. They're intended to feel like social spaces for people. Do Uh, you actually treat people in these We do. We do. We have clinical spaces there. We have exam rooms there. And we also have space for people to do group exercise, plug in their phone and charge up their phone, log on to Wi-Fi, talk to a community health partner about their transportation or their housing needs. The principle behind this is that, you know, so much of what we see in these populations is a sequelae of trauma that is a sequelae of poverty and discrimination and all of the other things that go along with being medically or behaviorally sick and having not enough resources. And what that means for folks is that even just sort of embodying what a patient experience is like. You know, if I'm a single mom, for example, with a couple of kids, I've got, you know, four chronic conditions in and out of the hospital trying to juggle a job and keep the lights on and the roof over my child's head. And you ask me to, which is what we ask our patients to do today, take a day off work, make an appointment six weeks in advance, arrange for childcare, pay for transportation, come wait for you, because 
we still wait in most clinics, and then get 10 minutes of someone kind of waving their hands at me and lecturing me for my weight, my diet, my diabetes, et cetera, and then go away. Like, you're not gonna do that very often. I'm not gonna do that. Yeah. Like the value prop is like, what, why would I do that? And, right. then, and, then, and then you're gonna like hear someone whispering that you're a non-compliant patient, right. or we've set it up in a way to further alienate patients, and the way that we deploy space is part of that. So what if we said, how do I incentivize somebody to come and get a checkup? or get their blood pressure managed. When, you know, if you have hypertension, you don't feel bad. You come in, you spend 10 minutes with the doctor, you don't feel any better. And you've just done all the things that I just said. You've just wasted all this time. So what are the things that people actually do want? Like, what's value? Is it a place to sit in air conditioning in the middle of the summer for a little while? Is it a sandwich? Is it a person to talk to? Is it Wi-Fi, charge your phone, someone to help you fill out your disability forms, what have you? And so really focusing through community engagement and focus groups to understand what each neighborhood needs and to put that there, you know, a bodega with cheaper vegetables, what have you. The second piece is the care team, and this is physicians, of course, I think play a really important role, but we've got to move away from the idea that doctors are the center of the universe and that that, like, 10 minutes of time that most primary care doctors spend with their patient on, you know, at best quarterly basis is meaningfully going to change the 99.9% .9 of the rest of the time in their life when they're not in front of a doctor. And we need people on the care team who can reach outside. We've invested really heavily in a workforce that we call our community health partners. These are folks who are not clinically licensed, so they're not social workers, they're not nurses. They're hired from the neighborhoods that we serve, and we work really hard to get as hyper-local as we can in terms of the representation of those teams. And then we put them through training in motivational interviewing, in empathy, in listening skills, and problem solving. We really look for people who are we look for the people who are the natural helpers in their lives, right? Like they're the people who, they're the go-to person in their family. They're empathic, they're kind, they're thoughtful, they're hardworking. And then we train them up around everything else. And these are the folks who are going out into the community. They meet our members in coffee shops. They go with them to their appointments. They help them go to the social security office or to the Medicaid office. They get on the phone and talk to them and listen to what's going on. Our teams also have nurses and behavioral health specialists and psychiatrists. And I think the other key piece for us is the blending of behavioral health. I mean, behavioral health integration was like, that was the fad that preceded the social determinants of health fad. And I think it got as far as saying, well, you know, behavioral health is super important, we should screen for it and maybe we'll co-locate. That's not enough. We do co-visiting with our behavioral health teams. We require our primary care providers to also be cross-trained in primary mental health and to be registered medication-assisted therapy providers, so waiver to provide Suboxone in primary care. And we work hand-in-hand -hand to make sure that our members behavioral health needs are met within that primary care environment and really consider that to be core to full-spectrum primary care. And then the final prong of our care model is, is our technology. It's called Commons. We built it from scratch. It has been, for me, one of the most amazing and fascinating experiences. I mean, prior to this, my only kind of exposure to technology in healthcare was like the EHR, which I hated. So what does Commons do differently? Um, I mean, is we had this chance to just start from scratch and actually just map out, like, what is it that I need to do? What are the optimal workflows we need to solve for? So first thing is like, is I it the EHR itself? It is not. It is. So you have an EHR underneath. That's it. right. Okay. And you know, and we could have a whole other discussion about what EHRs are going to become in twenty or thirty years if we fully transition into value-based care, which I hope we do soon. But this is about saying, first thing I need to do is I need to really understand my patient, and I need to know what's going on for them and with them, both 
from a medical perspective and also from every other domain of their life. And so Commons allows us to document in structured ways people's needs and capabilities in a whole host of domains in their life. So primary care is part of it, mental health is part of it, substance use disorder is part of it, but so is transportation and housing and engagement and social connections, literacy, and a whole host of other domains. It renders that in a way that anybody on the care team can see. How do we communicate as a team? We've inbuilt essentially project management functionality that allows us to say, you know, this person has unstable housing. There's five tasks we need to do around that. I can assign a task to anybody on the care team. I can message them within the app and say, how's it going? They can message me back. It allows for both synchronous and asynchronous communication across the teams. It allows us to have a single calendar view of the patient's life, which I've never seen in any EHR or care management platform. So, you know, it's reflective of the way we orient healthcare around providers, right? I I log in, I see my calendar. And so I schedule a physical exam three days before they have a pulmonology appointment, which is on a separate day from the cardiology appointment. And oh, by the way, they have a PTA meeting and they're supposed to go to the social security office. And like, I don't have any visibility into this. And I wonder why the patient doesn't show up, right? And then it allows us to communicate to members through the platform. So again, that data is collected. We can SMS in and out of the platform in a HIPAA compliant way. And then the two other pieces that I just think are, are sort of game changing in terms of our technology is the way we think about care planning. People talk about care plans as like, kind of the end-all be-all of collaborative care. What I've seen is that care plans are typically from the perspective of the provider or the care management agency. And typically they include 10, 15 things that this one human being who's juggling like 30,000 other things in their life is supposed to do, they can't do them. And so patients make choices implicitly or explicitly. More often than not, they just disregard half the things we tell them to do and do the things they think are important. And there is no single reconciliation of, of what somebody's working on that is a negotiation. I'm curious about the business. It strikes me that so much good stuff you're talking about, but how do you get these patients? Like marketing must be a real challenge because these patients by definition are, and recruitment are sort of underserved, but also are not trustful of the system and don't have good experience. So how do you guys get? Let's actually go up a level. So you sell it to a payer. Payer has a population of either managed Medicaid, dual eligible members in an urban place like the Bronx or Brooklyn or something like that. Are you taking global risk? We're built to take global risk. Obviously, the, the pace at which you progress to that varies like a ton on the kind of local economics of each contract and each market and the population. But that's Do you have our, line of sight on MLR yet? Of our population specifically? Yeah. Absolutely. And you feel like the MLR is consistent? I mean, you see a lot of these businesses, the IORAs and the landmarks, and they're all achieving really attractive MLRs. It takes some time. That's right. And so you're seeing good... It's early for us, right? And yeah. so, and I think one of the things you said earlier on the panel you were on, Steve, is just about that. It's like, this takes a while. Yeah. Um, it takes a long time. And we were talking about the people who were, I forget what you said, it's like people who are digging deep and actually... You he know, always getting says in. very memorable <laughs> things. Like, <laughs> so she already forgot I can't that's what I'm there. saying. I set like, myself up. I'm like, this thing you said was amazing. It was great, I but I don't really remember. Don't worry about it. I hear it all the time. But it's, you know, it's people who are like getting into the guts of things, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so this is like... This is the guts. This is the guts. I mean, yeah. we're talking about folks who, you're right, disengaged from the health system, who are mistrustful of it, with good reason, right. who have tons of other things that are more top of mind got for them. they a shitload of baggage. Totally, right? They're bringing to you for the first totally. time. Totally. And we have to find them. First of all, we have to find them. Right. You know? Phone numbers don't work, addresses right. are you know right. bogus, or they're, right. they've moved, or what have you. Or, or you find the person and they're like, you know what, I've had like 15 case managers in the last two years, call me, like screw you, I'm not interested, yeah. right? Um, we have to get through all of that. And then we have to, to point about the platform, we have to figure out an understanding of what's going on with them so we can rationalize, prioritize, and start working on the things that matter for them. And ultimately we have to convince them to change their behaviors and the way that they utilize the health system. I mean like, 
That's a long cycle, but it's possible. Continue to stand in awe of both the waste in our health system, because that's where the opportunity is, right? It's acute care utilization that is avertable, primarily, and there's a bunch of other drivers depending on the subpopulation, but that's your big lever. That's the hospitalizations that didn't need to happen, and there's so many of them. And it's also the kind of transformational power of a trusted human relationship in the system, because that's what all of us are offering in some way, shape, or form, is saying, forget all of this stuff, forget the idea that we're gonna sell a direct-to-consumer app for hypertension for people on Medicaid living in Brooklyn. It's not gonna happen. We have to go to people find them, build trust with them, and together we'll problem solve and together things will change. And like that actually works. The second thing that strikes me as challenging, and, and I may be just very naive about this, but I imagine a lot of your, do you call them members? Yeah, we members, do. Um, yeah. I imagine that they either have intermittently used the healthcare system, for sure probably have been underserved by the healthcare system, and some of them probably have very rarely used the healthcare system. So I assume they come to you, and they have a lot of challenges in their mm-hmm. lives by definition. So I assume they come to you with a lot of sort of undiagnosed conditions. Mm-hmm. And so in Medicaid, is risk adjustment exist or not? It, I, one of my questions yeah. is how do you get properly paid? Yeah. You're inheriting someone who's not used the system. Yeah. By definition, you're inheriting, I hate to use the financial term, but liabilities mm-hmm. that have been under, un, you're unfunded. You're adversely selecting. Yeah. Unfunded. And so then how do you, like, when you talk about MLR, like, geez, this feels like you're starting from a deficit. Is there a way to get up there quickly yeah. enough? It varies depending on the population. And just to answer the sort of actual question about risk adjustment, varies by state. Okay. And, oh, interesting. Um, state by state. State by state. And so Mississippi probably doesn't have great risk adjustment. Some states don't have the money to pay for these programs yeah, right, at yeah, all, like yeah. risk adjustment or not. Yeah, like. absolutely. And few are kind of attributable to the individual beneficiary, if that makes sense. So you may, as a plan in a book of business, receive a risk score, but that's an aggregate of, of all of your yeah, um, covered lives. Um, as opposed to you know, in CMS, you, you, you literally can look at this person and say, these are the HCCs that have been oh. coded for this person. This is their risk score on an individualized basis. You can't very frequently, you can't do that in Medicaid. Really? Absolutely. So and it was an average then? It's a rough average? It's Yeah, it's essentially, it's an aggregate for the entire plans book. Oh, wow. So yeah, you could actually be really challenging. That's if you, correct. Okay. There's a couple of approaches to that. So first on your point about on met need, we're still learning our population in Brooklyn. But anecdotally, I'll say we see a complete spread. There are certainly people who have just not accessed the healthcare system and have tons of needs. Unfortunately, those folks typically don't show up in most claims-based risk models, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that for for me is so exciting about this opportunity in Medicaid, which is the things that are actually predictors of high cost do not exist in structured data. And anyone who tells you they can run you uh, like an algorithm to to find them, I (laughs) I defy them to do that because I think we can build them. And folks are trying really hard to take consumer data and to take zip code analyses and a whole host of other ways to to start to approximate that. But, But until you get proximate to the human being to say, like, what's actually going on in your life? The person with horrible anxiety who has a cat who, when the cat dies, their anxiety becomes out of control. They call 911 in the middle of the night for panic attacks and the cycle begins, right? Like, where in the world in structured data would I find that? That's certainly not in claims. That's what we see spiking, particularly as we think about behavioral health and the social drivers of utilization and cost. And so that for me is like super interesting. And from a model perspective, really bakes into the core of what our platform is doing for us because it allows us to track and to to ask those questions in light touch ways so that we can start to populate and then over time train a model around that. In terms of how you build a financial model that is sustainable around them, it depends a lot. If you're taking a slice of high cost and 
high-risk people today who are definitionally, their costs of care far exceed their premium definitionally in Medicaid, right? Then what you're talking about is helping plans and your partners to essentially mitigate those losses over time. It may be assumed that this cohort is going to lose money for the health plan, and so CityBlock's job is to make it last worse. That's right. What's the retention of these members, your health plan partner in New York? I mean, What's the average time that one of these these members stays with that health plan? I'm yeah. going to ask the hard question. Yeah. You just said they're losing money on them. And so do they want to retain them? Well, it's, I'm, that's um, on the record. Like not saying your plan, but like yeah. health plans in general. Yeah. So like it's a really interesting proposition that they're providing an amazing service to a population that they lose money on. Well, but there are predicates of players who've done well. Like Centene can make money on this population. Correct as can some of the service providers that actually take the subcontracted risk. So, but my point being is it's not, like, it's not like accepted across America that no one can make money on this population. There is predicates. So the two pieces to that. So there's the high sorry, risk. Sorry, Tori, we're having a no, conversation right, we're right now. Like, I'm like, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Why are you interrupting us? Right, So there's two pieces to that. So, so I buy your point if we're talking specifically just about high cost patients, members. Yeah. I think it is very few a health plan is cynical enough to to say, you know what, I'm hands off, I'm gonna wait until this person attrits or turns off or what have you. Like that's just not the response we're seeing. And what we find is that high cost members tend to be more persistent with their plan because they're also really dependent on mm -hmm. their specialists and their network and their providers and are much more incentivized to remain covered, right? If you've got end-stage kidney disease and you're on dialysis and you have five yeah, specialists, you like, stay you're staying. And that's not a bet people are willing to take. The second piece to that, though, is part of what is so interesting, I think, about our model is that we're not just going after that kind of definitionally, persistently high-cost population. We're also working with our plans to identify the rising risk population. Because what we find when you look at the both managed and unmanaged populations is even if you do an exceptional job, and I think some of the businesses that really do just focus on those high risk outliers, over time what we're hearing and seeing, and certainly it's, it makes cognitive sense, is that even if you manage down costs within that high cost population, they will be replaced by other people who are rising risk and who needed more, right? And so if it's a binary gating factor, you know, you get high touch clinical care only when you have X or more diagnoses, or you've achieved X spend threshold, or your MLR has exceeded this level, that group renews itself constantly. And so part of what we're doing is reaching down below that high cost segment into the rising risk segment to say, not only are we taking care of your today persistently high cost members, but we are working with you to identify the folks who will replace them over time, and we're leveraging our care model down to them. And that's a key piece as well. Just to uh, ground some of this in the numbers, you know, maybe it's New, you're in New York, right? Mm -hmm. So what's the average Medicaid PMPY? Yeah, it's about $700 PMPM. So. $700 PMPM. What does it do when it's dual eligible? So $8,400 a year. Yeah, $8,400 a year or so. Yeah. Um, if you're dual, it gets closer to about 2000 yeah. PMPM. Mm -hmm. yeah, what's no, the PMPM. average MLR cost for, you know, not your member or Medicaid? Depends dramatically on the plan, and none of them would share that sort of publicly. What do you think the average cost per member is? Is it more than $8,400, it sounds like? Depending on the market and depending on the plan, to your point, some plans make money in this business, yeah. right? And frankly, to be sustainable, most of them have to figure out a way to do that. Yeah. We're talking your sort of traditional 
86, 88% kind of target on an MLR perspective on the total book of business. And there are outliers, and there are outlier populations that continue to jeopardize potentially that MLR target for the plan, depending on the geography. And so what we often see is that it's the typical top 10% driving 50% of cost, et cetera, and that the rate of increase in that population exceeds the rate of increase in the general population as well. And your population isn't in long-term care. They're not institutionalized. They're all home-based. They're home-based. And so I think there's one point... $3 $3 trillion spent in Medicare and Medicaid. There's a hundred and I think 30 million Americans enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid. I think there's roughly 15 million dual eligibles. Okay. Is that right? Yep. And I think if you took the aggregate enrolled membership in Iora, Oak Street Health, ChenMed, City Block Health, Landmark Health, et cetera, it's probably a couple hundred thousand people. Yep, absolutely. So does this business scale? I mean, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of annual spend. Can you scale? That is the question. And that's the question that underpinned our bet in technology. So I don't believe that technology in and of itself will meaningfully change this. I mean, we're not building apps direct to consumers that that are going to change their outcomes in a scalable way. What I do think that technology does is it allows us to scale high-touch care models and to efficiently and in a value-based way truly scale the experience of care for these patients. And so what does that look like? So we're starting with what is admittedly a, you know, it's a it's a brick and mortar infrastructure. We've seen those in all of the, the exception of a couple of the landmarks and others, but that it is human capital intensive and it is, you know, physical space intensive and those things take a long time to scale. And if you were to stamp them out at the pace of Chipotle, we still wouldn't chip away at those 15 million people fast enough. So that can't be the solution in and of itself, although I think it's a really important part of proving the model, of creating a model store, if you will, and of creating a hub that allows us to disseminate best practices across other spaces. But the piece I think that does scale for us is when you look at where these members, patients are accessing care today, most of them are accessing care from traditional providers who are in fee-for-service world, right? And these are the providers who struggle to move into risk, don't have the balance sheet to put up, who need support around care delivery transformation and model of care transformation, and who will benefit from technology, as well as some auxiliary clinical services, you know, telemedicine, mm-hmm. wraparound behavioral health, community health partner models, but perhaps not the full physical and the full care team experience to help bridge them to that world. And so that's the scale play for us, is to say, how do we take what we've learned here, how do we take the technology we've built and use that as a chassis around which we wrap existing providers, and in that way are able to reach many more members. So just, Mr. Investor, thinking about TAM, this is a $360 billion a year spend if it's $24,000 per year. Did you just year. do Excel math? I saw you type in I did. Yeah, that was... I can't do I that can't math do, Yeah, you can't head. do that in my head. No. Just in duels alone. You're a people guy. Yeah. Yeah, no, actually, it's a big opportunity. It's messy. It's, it's really, really messy. It's, it's messy and hard, right? No, there's, that's why, like, you know, that's what entrepreneurs do is they snuff out stuff that people haven't done before, but there's not a lot of predicates here. Yeah, it's, it's, like a, it's very a tough few. problem. And you can't even use CCA because it's a nonprofit. It's a great predicate from the clinical model, well, and but you can't use it. I mean, yeah, the, the, Oak Street's very different than, listen, I love Jeff and all those guys, Mike, but that's not nearly as hard as this model. A lot of those guys benefit from risk adjustment, right? Right, and a lot by of those the way, guys managing Medicare, Medicare Advantage population, it's been done before. Listen, I love what Oak Street's doing. There's very similar themes to what City Block's doing, but it's not... It's like one-tenth easier. So if you were advising Adam Bowler, who obviously built Landmark, that business has benefited from risk adjustment as well. But if you were advising Seema Verma and Adam Bowler 
around how to enable businesses like CityBlock or other companies that are trying to tackle Medicaid populations. This is state driven, yeah. not federally yeah. driven. How do we tackle this problem? Yeah, I think there's one thing that I would love to see folks do, which is to explicitly incentivize investing differentially in what we would consider pre-duels in the Medicaid line of business. So folks who are Medicaid beneficiaries today who are likely to become dually eligible. I'm particularly interested in the people who are accumulating diagnoses and disabilities and are young because the cost drivers there are immense and that's where we're not spending enough on preventive care because if you're a Medicaid member and you are, you know, you're accessing services within your benefit and the vast majority of providers taking Medicaid, direct Medicaid reimbursement are fee for service, they're not being asked to do care coordination, they're not being incentivized to spend the time on behavioral health integration, they're not being incentivized to really get into the guts of what's going on with this person and then the member becomes dual and suddenly it's like, okay, now we got all the stuff. And you know, they've had that heart attack, they've had that stroke, they've so had that amputation. And if you're a plan that has both a Medicare book of business and a Medicaid book of business, depending on who that beneficiary is, yeah. health plans are not necessarily incentivized to, to try to attract that person into their Medicare Advantage product. But there are ways to do that, right? Yeah. I'm particularly interested in under 65 individuals who are receiving Medicaid and who are likely to become dually eligible. I think there's so much we can do there. These are people with you know, stage four chronic kidney disease who are going to end up on dialysis. These are people with serious mental illness who you know, are likely to develop cardiovascular disease as a correlation of their medications. Like These are the people who we don't proactively go out and find. These are your homeless folks with COPD and probably an undiagnosed mental illness. Like We should be incentivized financially. I think certainly CMS has a financial incentive to do so, to provide a structure that allows people to proactively bring care and services to these members in a way that prevents the progression of disability. That would be my first recommendation. I want to ask back to your journey as an entrepreneur, which is relatively nascent. No, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but still, you're obviously extremely wise. What are your like reflections and lessons that you've learned that you'd share with other entrepreneurs, especially maybe particular MD entrepreneurs? They do not teach you this stuff in medical school. Um, <laughs> um, I think physicians have to figure out ways to get involved in health tech and in venture-backed companies because we bring a lens from the patient experience that is really powerful in fact, and just like gut checking kind of what people are focusing on. And I don't think we have enough of that. I think you see a lot of products come to the market that you know a group of discerning doctors would look around and be like, really? Like that's gonna, <laughs> like why? Why don't we do that thing? First is to say to docs, speak up and try to be heard. I think the second thing, and, and this is another interest of mine, is thinking about burnout for physicians, particularly in primary care. And I think part of what drives that burnout is that. Doctors, by and large, and these gross generalizations, but we're people who have been taught through medical school, through residency, through pre-med, that like, if you try harder, you will succeed. Like, just put your back into it, and like, you'll get there. Just sleep less. Sleep less, study yeah. more, work harder. And we're today, particularly in primary care, we're confronted with a system that we cannot work our way through. Like, we can't win. You see all the 25 patients in front of you, you come in early, you do your charting, you stay up late and you do your charting, and you just don't get ahead because the thing that you're trying to do, you are not set up to do. You cannot effectively, meaningfully take care of our most needy patients in a 10-minute visit in a fee-for-service clinic. And what happens is that docs keep working harder, and then they pull back, and they burn out. And I, something about my personality, I think it's probably a combination of like 
hubris and stubbornness, was like, I don't think it's me. I think I'm a really good, smart, hardworking person. If I can't succeed at this, maybe the system's broken. And maybe I need to be part of doing something I to disrupt that. it. That's great. And I would encourage other docs to, to ask that same question. Like if we're yeah. if we're spinning the wheels and we're looking at our patients who are not getting healthier, we're working longer hours, we're miserable, they're miserable. Making less money too, that's the other money, issue. Like people don't trust us, we're vilified kind of everywhere you look. Like maybe it's not you, maybe it's the system. And we should be thinking collectively about how we change that system. I love Let's that. Let's end on that. Like, how do you not end on that? Guess what? We have the editing power. We can end on that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you guys. For yeah, this us. is awesome. It's the one healthcare person has an NPS of like a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> That's really kind of you to say. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks a lot Thanks. for joining us. Thanks for listening to a healthy dose. Please subscribe through iTunes, and if you have any suggestions for topics or guests please tweet us at a healthy dose pod. Yeah.